the legacy of now former finance minister Bill Morneau. That is something that Matt Gurney, who is a columnist and editor with the National Post, has been writing about. And Matt Gurney is joining me on the line right now to talk a bit more about that. Thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. Good to be here. Uh, So many things that we could be talking about uh, and different uh, ways of looking at this, but I'll start with how you've talked about the deficits that Bill Morneau ran and the choice of language he used when he announced that he was stepping down and that focus on pre-pandemic times. Yeah, when I was watching on Monday night his uh, his press conference, I was curious because obviously the context of this, you've already alluded to this. There was the we revelation and now there's uh, that document dump that just happened last night. So there's a lot of new stuff coming out of there. Bill Morneau was involved in that. So that was part of his context. But the other context had been all the articles that have been popping out over the last couple of weeks all of them noting growing tension between Bill Morneau and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And then when Mark Carney, the former governor of the Bank of Canada, just returned from a stint as governor of the Bank of England, he comes back and he's immediately appointed as a special advisor. You know, in the abstract, it didn't really sound like much. It was, okay, you know, smart dude, comes back to Canada, scores advisory gig. Not normally a story, but what made it a story was because of the immediate sense that this was somehow marginalizing Bill Morneau. So when he was quitting, I was paying a lot of attention because I wanted to hear what he had to say. And I thought it was interesting in in his statement and then also in the answers that he gave after that the the former finance minister took the opportunity to draw a line between the things he was proud of and the work he had done before the pandemic and the things that had happened during the pandemic. We can't quite say after yet because we're stuck in the middle of it. And I actually thought, you know, on, on the finance minister's, former finance minister's part, credit where it's due, I actually thought that was an astute observation. I thought he had that right. I don't think anything that happened in the pandemic is really going to reflect on Bill Morneau for two reasons. First of all, he seems to have been out of step with the government's priority, and he seems to have been the loser on a lot of these debates. That's why apparently there was this tension. The other matter is, I I think so much has happened during the pandemic. I don't think anyone's going to be particularly remembered for their particular role. What that brings us to is that Bill Morneau, an unusually affluent and successful guy for federal politics, is going to be remembered for his first four years of that. And honestly, you know, there had been some talk in the last couple of weeks that one of the reasons he was unhappy in the job is because, you know, the prime minister wants to spend big. He has a grand vision for remaking Canadian society, we're told. I find that terrifying, but that's a topic for another day. And Bill Morneau didn't want to be the guy. He didn't want to be the guy signing those checks. He didn't want to be the guy reinventing Canada as we know it and becoming responsible for those deficits. And I had to scratch my head a little bit at that and go, yeah, but Bill, that's already your legacy. Like your first four years, you can talk about your accomplishments. You can talk about the things you're proud of. But all of that was bankrolled on the tens of billions of borrowed bucks. This is a government that came into power with a plan for fiscal uh, moderation. They were going to run, we were told, temporary limited deficits, and they screwed it up. They couldn't do it. That's already his legacy. Right. So do you think he just didn't want it to go so far beyond that or, or realized at this point? I mean, I mean, do you do you buy also what was leaked, those those leaked ideas that these besties actually didn't agree on what Serb should look like, didn't agree what the COVID-19 bailout or the government help measures should look like? 
You know what? I mean, I buy them to the extent that they're coming from credible sources. Um, for some reason, the liberals aren't sending me their internal emails anymore. Um, so I, I can't verify that personally. But, I mean, the leaks are credible to the extent that they're coming from reputable organizations, reputable, well-connected reporters. And if nothing else, it kind of fits, doesn't it, right? Like, even if some of the um, the specifics are off a bit, and that can happen when you're using anonymous sources, but it fits what was pretty obviously a breaking down of, of their relationship. Um, when these reports began coming out, it was all pretty much in line with a timeline of Bill Morneau's growing frustrations and ultimately his exit. So, you know, what the reporting suggests is that the we stuff that popped up recently was very much the the straw that broke the proverbial camel's back, right? The relationship was already strained. They were unhappy with each other. This comes along, and it just pushed things to a breaking point. Uh, you know, what's interesting, though, if you look at kind of other uh, problems the liberals have run into here, what, what comes to mind immediately is that Bill Morneau at least seems to have been able to negotiate the terms of his own exit. I don't know if that was because the, the prime minister was worried uh, about Bill Morneau putting up more of a fight than Jody Wilson-Raybould or Jane Philpott, or maybe just the Prime Minister has reduced credibility and he knows it. But, I mean, this is not a PM who particularly will abide much uh, dissent within his own cabinet, at least by all appearances. And we also have the scenario, too, where Bill Morneau resigns. He resigns after he testifies at the House of Commons Committee, where he had forgotten to pay back $41 million until the morning that he resigned. I mean, he is so connected to this as well. Uh, you look at how things are unfolding now and what's happening now, and you, I, I find myself asking the question, is Christian Freeland the only one left who can do anything and not get in trouble? Well, you know what? I mean, that's actually a really interesting question. Um, and like, let's take a long view of this. When the prime minister was first sworn in in 2015, one of the things he had said was, "We're going to be a cabinet-based government. Like, we're gonna we're not going to have power concentrated in the prime minister's office. We're not going to do what that evil Stephen Harper did. Like, we're going to re- restore Canada to its parliamentary roots. We're going to have a strong, vibrant cabinet." And for a while, they seemed to at least try to do that. Um, And they certainly had some high-profile cabinet ministers. They also, I mean, you remember, of course, the gender balance cabinet because it's 2015 and, you know, uh, also uh, cabinet ministers who were visible minorities in prominent roles, so on and so forth. But sometime over the last five years, and I don't even think it took five years, the power has yet again coalesced around the prime minister's office. If you look for a pretty consistent through line of all of the prime minister's biggest scandals, with the exception of black and brown face, because that was a personal failure, if you look at his political scandals, a recurring theme in all of them is that power has been concentrated very, very much around the prime minister and that he has often gone too far with it, that he has not been effectively held in check by his cabinet, by his advisors, by his PMO staff. I don't know if that's a failure of his office. I don't know if it's a failure of the party. Maybe he's just unmanageable. I can't speak to that. But for a government that started off talking about how power was going to be decentralized and put in the in the hands of very competent aides, what we have seen repeatedly uh, with the Aga Khan trip, with the Admiral Mark Norman affair, then with SNC-Lavalin, and now this – is that Mr. Trudeau gets in trouble when he tries to do too much within his own orbit. 
a guy who really trusted his cabinet would not forget to recuse himself from situations like this. And yet here we are. So you asked the question about Christian Freeland. Is she the best person left to do it? Maybe. Is she the only person left who can? Yeah, maybe that's true as well. But the other thing you got to just keep in mind here is it's getting kind of hard to even name another Trudeau cabinet minister, isn't it? Like they started off with a lot of prominent names. If you put your mind to it, you can come up with a couple of them. You can, you can sit down and you can rack your brain for a bit and come up with a few. But for a guy who started with a high-profile cabinet that was front and center, it's been the Justin Trudeau show for a couple of years now. All right, Matt, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for being available to chat with us. Anytime. You take care. Well, as you know, tomorrow we are expecting to hear from Mike Farnworth about increased enforcement when it comes to people who are breaking the COVID-19 rules. Talking more about private house parties, although that's raised a lot of questions as to what exactly people can do or law enforcement can do for that matter. If people are caught, maybe your neighbor snitches on you, you see something that appears to be breaking the rules. Uh, There are a lot of questions as to what is going to be announced tomorrow. But if we look to some other jurisdictions where they've tried to do this, does it actually work? My next guest has written about this. Julia Marcus joins me on the line now, an infectious disease epidemiologist, as well as an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, Your story in The Atlantic and the headline, I think, almost says it all. The fun police should stand down. Uh, Talk a little bit, if you can, about what you looked at as far as the fun police in certain jurisdictions and what that actually does. Yeah, first I'll say, just to be clear, um, parties are concerning in a pandemic. And I think particularly what we want to avoid is crowded indoor settings where um, you know, that that could potentially turn into super spreader events. That's kind of our most important thing that we want to prevent. Um, but we know from other areas of public health that when we start to bring in law enforcement of public health guidelines, things don't always play out the way we would want them to. And not only does um, law enforcement not necessarily deter the risky behaviors that we are trying to prevent, can actually be counterproductive in the sense that people become much less willing to participate in public health efforts like contact tracing. So in the end, what we, what we end up doing is pushing the behavior underground rather than preventing it. Uh, you've cited some examples of parties and uh, and making that distinction as well between, say, a party at a gathering or a gathering outdoors at a beach compared to, say, a party inside a house in a closed quarter, a closed quarter setting. Uh, can you talk a little bit about those examples, though, where we have seen uh, officials even threaten uh, closing down those areas and what kind of an impact that has? That's right. I think there has been an outsized focus for months now on gatherings that appear to be fun, but may actually be low risk. So I want to make a distinction between something like, you know, people spending a day at the beach, which has become kind of an iconic image of the pandemic with a a lot of media um, reports, including these images, 
um, versus people having a crowded indoor party, which, of course, is going to be much higher risk. And I think sometimes the people gathering on the beach or in the park can inspire a sense of um, frustration and anger. You know, look at these people selfishly having fun in a pandemic, but actually it's going to be much lower risk, not zero risk, but much lower risk than if those people had gathered indoors. So I think it's a bit misguided to close down outdoor spaces, which could actually drive people toward higher risk activities. And we've even seen it here, too, with kind of that public shaming and people taking pictures earlier on in the pandemic. It was happening more people posting photos of beaches that appeared to be really crowded. But then if you actually got up and in the crowds, not the crowd or up on the beach, you would see, yes, it was smaller groups, but they were distanced and actually doing what they were supposed to be doing. Uh, Much different than it's not as though people are posting photos of indoor parties and and people that might be in more high risk scenarios simply because they're not on public display. That's right. I think we focus on what's visible to us and, and also what tends to inspire moral outrage. And, and I think there, you know, it's, it's understandable to feel frustrated when you see what appears to be a crowd of people doing something that may be putting others at risk. Um, but I think we have to take a step back, back and ask, is this something we actually need to be concerned about? And in the case of a, a huge crowded indoor party, it may be. But I think even in those cases of higher risk activities, we, we need to be judicious in, in the use of law enforcement for public health. Uh, and one of the examples uh, off in, in the piece, too, talks about uh, a mayor in Los Angeles uh, saying that the power would be shut off, the power and water would be shut off to residents with large gatherings, uh, that hosts could be subject to fines or prison time. Uh, does does threat threatening like that work in any scenario? Well, I mean, focusing specifically on public health, um, you know, we don't have evidence from from the pandemic itself, but we do have evidence from other areas of public health that um, criminalizing potentially risky behavior that, that may spread disease does not actually deter that behavior. And there may be ways that it can actually increase risk. And one thing I'll note also is that criminalization or, or legal you know, law enforcement um, doesn't tend to um, play out in ways that are equitable. And we see this particularly in the U.S., but certainly in Canada as well, that policing can tend to disproportionately impact communities that are already marginalized. And and so that, I think, needs to be front and center when we do turn, or if we do turn to enforcement of public health guidelines. And when we look at that as well, um, in BC, there's been a real push to not bring in strict rules. Uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry, who uh, you reference in the piece as well, has been very much of the she doesn't like to make orders unless she absolutely has to. Uh, she did in the beginning in shutting down restaurants. And there are rules when it comes to how many people can be at a table now at restaurants that have opened. Uh, but she's been of the mind, too, that she doesn't like to make orders. She would prefer to get people to buy in, to understand why it's important to buy in. Uh, do you think, does something like that work better? Absolutely. I think Dr. Henry is really following the playbook of what works best in public health. And, you know, I understand that there's uh, some people are kind of trying to push for more enforcement, but I really think her approach of using enforcement as a last result is ideal and will sustain public trust in a way that um, harsh enforcement and and a lack of um, empathy and messaging does not. So I've really been impressed with her leadership. 
At what point, though, do you think that changes as far as in B.C.? We're now seeing the number of cases go back up, particularly in a younger crowd. Uh, we're seeing more people gathering uh, in uh, outdoors and indoors. So, uh, I mean, on the bright side, our hospital uh, hospitalizations are down. People in the ICU are down to, to single digits. But if we're seeing this one particular group uh, that seems to not be following the rules as much anymore, does that mean, at, at what point do you bring in a, a stronger enforcement model? I think um, you bring it in as a last resort and you bring it in very carefully. And, and really, I think it need, you need to think through, is what we're going to do here actually going to deter the behavior? And um, I would I would suggest trying to use other alternatives as much as possible. For example, encouraging safer um, gatherings, encouraging outdoor activity, actually opening up more outdoor space and shifting regulations uh, and uh, around use of that space to actually, um, you know, encourage people to come out of their their homes and, and to not be in crowded indoor environments, especially in areas where people lack private outdoor space. And do you think as well, it's, it seems to me that it's also a, a point of not being knee-jerk about it in that I get email from people and uh, comments on social media saying this is ridiculous with the numbers going back up. We should shut down all the bars and restaurants. But unless you're actually seeing that the numbers, that there's transmission and the numbers are coming from, say, restaurants, then it seems to me that's, that's quite a knee-jerk reaction to say we should shut it down without knowing that that is in fact the problem. Yeah, I would I would definitely agree with that. I think that as much as possible, policy decisions should be based on contact tracing data, which are often not made public. And so it's difficult for the public to know whether something really is a problem. And and I think it's the same with um, social gatherings. I mean, I think some areas, both, both B.C., but also here in Massachusetts, elected officials have said parties are really driving the new cases. But we don't see, we as the public don't see the, the data, and we have to kind of rely on the health department and elected officials to be making those decisions. But, yeah, I absolutely agree. If, if there's no transmission happening in a, a particular setting, that may not be the biggest bang for your buck in terms of policy change. Uh, and when you talk about contra- contact tracing, and Dr. Henry has talked about that being a very important tool as well, how important is buying? And you mentioned this, that if you go heavy handed on enforcement, if you if enforcement is kind of running the show, people aren't going to be all that happy to, to turn around and say, OK, well, I'll cooperate. Yes, absolutely. I'll, I'll sign on to this. How important is it to make sure we get that balance so that people are OK with participating in contact tracing or, or even if they're comfortable with it, downloading an app that helps uh, helps track cases? Yeah, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head. That balance really is essential. You you need trust and you need buy-in in order for contact tracing to work. And you can imagine a situation where if you have very harsh penalties for hosting a large gathering and then you either host or attend one, um, and there is some some you know a case traced to that that gathering. People are going to be very hesitant to disclose that they were there, and then you you end up in a situation where your public health efforts break down. And that's why it's such a tricky balance between you know maintaining trust and and judiciously using enforcement in such a way that you're not actually undermining that trust. All right, so we'll leave it there for today, uh, Julia Marcus. Thank you so much for joining us to talk more about this. Uh, very interesting take on this. Uh, I really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me.
Well, as we know, fundraisers, events that take place every year, whether they're runs or big gatherings in communities, they have all looked a little bit different or a lot different, you might say, because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And that is true as well of the fight against multiple sclerosis and the partnership between uh, that community and A&W. Every year they do a big event, Burgers to Beat MS, it's also going to look a little bit different this year. And joining me to talk a little bit more about this, we've got a few people all connected to this great cause. On the line with us now, we have Pamela Valentine, who is the CEO of the MS Society of Canada. Pamela, thanks so much for being with us for having us. No problem. I think we also, we're just getting the phone lines worked out. Uh, Susan Senecal, the CEO of ANW, and Christine Sinclair, who's been on the program before talking about this, a very well-known Canadian soccer player. So thanks, all three of you, for being with us. Great to be here. Uh, Pamela, I'll start with you. As uh, the CEO of the MS Society of Canada, I know this event is going to be a little different this year, featuring or focusing more on, on takeout. Uh, but what is the goal of, of partnering with ANW? What is the goal of this event? Well, it's really about communities helping communities. And the ANW community right across this country has, for the last 12 years, and this year is no different, come out and, and really help to support raise fun, raising funds to uh, support uh, those Canadians living with MS, and we do have the highest rate of, of MS uh, in the world, and so there's a, a lot for us to be doing together. And uh, I'll bring in as well, as I mentioned, we've got a few people on the line. Uh, Susan Senecal, who's the CEO of A&W Canada. Maybe can you talk a little bit about how it looks different this year and that people are still encouraged to, to, get, to get a burger tomorrow, but what will be different? Great. Well, it's the first, uh, it's our 12th annual Burgers to Beat MS, but it's the first ever uh, takeout Burgers to Beat MS. So what we saw was that our guests really want to contribute and um, participate, but they would prefer to take out burgers and take them home, enjoy them safely at a park bench or at home uh, with their families. And so it's a takeout edition. They can participate by buying a teen burger either um, through the drive-through, takeout, uh, through a delivery service. Uh, through the mobile app. There's lots of ways to take um, the great taste of teen burgers home. And at the same time, each teen burger sold, uh, $2 goes directly to the MS Society of Canada to help in the important work of research and helping people whose lives are touched by MS. Uh, which actually, of all the, the events that have had to change and adapt because of the pandemic, this one, it almost seems like the easiest one in that it's some of the easiest food to do the takeout and to do that route instead. Yeah, and I think what was so inspiring was how you know anxious our franchisees and their teams and so on said, "Well, we were absolutely ready to do this," and you know had a lot of creativity, a lot of new ideas on how to really extend that across the country in a different way. And I think um, the takeout edition is going to be superb. We hope to raise over a million dollars uh, with Four Burgers to Beat MS. Uh, Christine Sinclair, I'll bring you in as well. You've been on the program talking about this before. Uh, People know you probably best as a Canadian soccer player, but you also have a very personal connection to this. Yeah. um, First of all, hi, guys. Um, (laughs) My my mom uh, was diagnosed with MS. Uh, She's going to kill me and my brother's going to kill me. And I've been rubbing it in all day, 40 years ago, because my brother turns 40 this year. Um, yeah, so she was diagnosed 40 years ago. And so I, yeah, grew up in a household with a parent living with MS. And I've, yeah, seen firsthand the, 
yeah, the impact it can have on an individual and a family. And yeah, so this is my fourth year being a part of uh, Burgers to Beat MS Day, and it's been one of the the best things I've ever been a part of. Well, and forty years. I mean, that that's such obvious. I mean, on the one hand, people might hear that and think, "Well, forty years, so it's it's a disease you can live with." But I would imagine you would know firsthand that part of the reason that that your mom has been able to do this is because of research and because of fundraising and because of therapies and the fact that there are so many of us that are dedicated to finding a cure and to finding ways to beat this. Yeah, I mean the the support that my mom has received it's uh it's been amazing. Um but the thing with MS uh it can be a very slow moving disease and uh that's how it has impacted my mom like slowly taking away one thing after another. Um so my mom yeah, she she's been in a wheelchair ever since I was a freshman in college, so just a couple of years ago and you know to to see her transform from, you know, I mean, she was my soccer coach when I was a little kid, you know, and like, I remember her water skiing and things like that. And now, you know, to go from into a wheelchair and now be in a care home, it's just the, the slow progression of it. Um, I think it's actually the hardest part because like, it just slowly takes away. And 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 I'm so glad that you're part of this and able to to share your story and to make it so personal. But uh, are you hopeful when you, when you when we talk about raising a million dollars in this campaign and the research? Do you see the research and does that give you and your mom hope that uh, that we are making progress? I mean, obviously, like I don't know the details of the research. I'm probably not the one on this phone call to be talking about with that with. Um, but I think for me, it's just about the awareness piece. Um, you know, I think quite a few people with MS sort of live in silence with it. And I know my mom, my mom did for the longest time. And, and because of that, I don't think it's, it's not out there like other diseases are. Um, and so my, I find my, what I want to do in my role is just to bring awareness to the disease and make Canadians aware of it and, we can go from there. All right. And Pamela, we unfortunately only have about a minute left, but maybe you can talk about the importance of that research. Uh, we've made really incredible progress. Um, we have a much better understanding of the causes of the disease today than we did, you know, 40 years ago for sure. And in the last 20 years, there's been an enormous number of treatments that have, have become available. Not that there isn't a long way to go, but I would say there's a huge amount of momentum that's really important for us to continue to, to push forward. All right. Well, thanks to all three of you for taking some time uh, to be with us today. I appreciate it. And uh, we'll remind everybody again tomorrow that tomorrow is the day uh, for Burgers to Beat MS. Thanks to all of you for being on the show. Thanks very much. Thank you, guys. Well, as you've likely seen and heard, there is a fire burning. It's about six kilometers north of Okanagan Falls, the Christie Mountain wildfire, and it is causing concern for many people. Well, joining me on the line to talk about the wildfire situation in that part of the province is John Vasilaki, the mayor of Penticton. Mayor, thank you so much for being with us. I know it's a busy day for you. Thank you very much, Jill. Good afternoon. Good afternoon to you. I know there was an update about an hour ago. So where do things stand as far as the wildfire situation there? Uh, the fire is still out of control. Uh, fortunately, though, it's not moving at a very um, 
uh, steady pace. It's very slow. It's burning within itself. Uh, the winds are very calm. Uh, so that will help a lot. But unfortunately, tomorrow and Friday, they're forecasting that the winds are are not going to be as uh, quiet as they are at the present time. So we might have uh, future problems to contend with. And do you know at this point how many people are under evacuation order and evacuation alert? Within the city of Penticton, there's 3,700 properties um, that are under the, uh, not evacuation order, but uh, to be ready to be evacuated at a moment's notice. Um, and within the regional district, there is uh, close to another um, 2,500 uh, properties that have been uh, there under evacuation um, strategies as well. Hmm. Uh, that's got to be uh, troubling or, or stressful for, for not only you, but for everybody in the community. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, wildfires are very, very dangerous. Um, not only to human life, but animal life and property um, by, by structures um, when I'm talking about properties. Um, you know, and it's my own home is under evacuation uh, readiness. So um, I, I know how those folks feel. Um, they're, they're upset. They're concerned. Uh, but we're doing the utmost and the best we can to make sure that their properties aren't going to be reached by the fire or no damage or harm comes to anyone. And when you say that uh, your own home is in that area, that uh, you have to be ready to leave if you're told to leave, how do you even prepare for that, to be ready to leave when someone knocks on the door or they say it's time to get out? Yeah. Well, we gave everybody plenty of notice uh, to prepare for it. Um, and in my case, we've been married for uh, nearly 51 years so there's a lot of mementos, a lot of history in our home, and it'll take a lot, a lot of work and um, a lot of time to put all that together uh, and trying to get it out in case uh, those the bad news come into uh, taking place, which I hope never happens to anyone, let alone me. Um, you know, so it it takes a lot of preparedness, uh, and everybody should be prepared so they can. Uh, get out within a moment's notice. Don't wait to start packing your uh, valuables or your mementos at the last minute. And are there places set up? I, I know in these scenarios, a lot of people often have friends or family that they can go and stay with. Are there places set up for people that don't have that? In, in case uh, it happens, we have one of the largest com- um, community centers and convention centers outside of Vancouver. Um, and we've used our convention center in previous years when we had such emergencies, uh, like the fire in Kelowna and uh, some of the other areas, and we welcome people to come, and we can put hundreds of beds um, in the convention center. Also, we've been talking to the folks up in Summerland, which is 15 kilometers away, um, and they're also prepared uh, to give us a hand in putting uh, people up in case um, they don't have friends or uh, family members to take them in um, on short term. Is it difficult as well, or are there more challenges with the pandemic? Being uh, used to, we would see the pictures of just putting as many beds as you can into convention yeah. centers or places for anybody that needs a place to go. Uh, with distancing, how much more challenging is that? It varies. Um, but we are in constant uh, 
touch and we have many meetings with the interior health um, here in, uh, in Penticton where um, they, in, in case the order comes down, they have to come as well to make sure that those people that are um, uh, self-isolating are taken care of, plus those that have COVID in case there are any. And I don't know of any cases in the city of Penticton uh, they have COVID um, interior health will be there to make sure that they'll, they'll, uh, will be put in the right um, place to prevent any spread of COVID um, going any further. Uh, yeah, I hadn't even thought of that, but I, I suppose that's a bit of a silver lining that there are no confirmed cases. So that's another uh, level of uh, that you have to deal with, because I would imagine it's, 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 it's enough dealing with distancing and making sure there's enough space for everybody that needs it. Absolutely. But we have a lot of facilities in Penticton. For, for a city our size and the population of only 35,000 people, we have facilities that most people in the million, million um, people population don't have. Um, like our event center, that will hold many, many hundreds of people. The convention center, the same. Um, we have two other ice sheets that we can use as well. So we're well prepared um, to to house and take care of the the, the proper um, distancing um, to prevent any any spread of the virus. And as for the, the general public, I know I, I saw a report earlier that boaters were asked being asked to stay off of yes. Skaha Lake. What else are you asking for the public as crews try to get to the upper hand on this fire? We want them to follow regulations and notices that are given to them uh, by the by both. Um, BC Wildfire Service, as well as the city of Penticton in the original district. We are all putting notices out and giving them and trying to educate them as to what to do uh, and, and to follow those regulations that we're putting in place. And if they don't follow it, things will go wrong. Um, and that's why I'm so happy, with, especially with COVID in the city of Penticton, everybody's following regulations or the majority of the people are following regulations. And that's why we're probably one of the safest cities um, in British Columbia to, to live in at the present time. Hmm. Uh, as for the fire itself, do you know or do we know at this point what the cause was? The, the cause, no, we don't. They haven't made anything public at present. And this is really, we were just even talking yesterday about how this, the wildfire season, this season hasn't been nearly as bad as it has been in previous years. Uh, Unfortunately, now we're talking about this fire, Uh, 0% contained, as you mentioned, uh, and and concerned about the winds tomorrow. Uh, Crews continuing then, I suppose, to to fight it. And again, just asking people to to give them the space they need while they try and, and get this fire contained. Absolutely. Um, and, and like I said, uh, we're hoping that the people will follow uh, regulations and, um, and they do what they're supposed to do and be ready. And uh, I want them all to be safe. Uh, we've also opened our, um, uh, our emergency registration center here in the city. I was there this morning. Uh, there were a lot of people. Um, so far, I think 109 or 110 have registered. Uh, those are the folks that have no place to go in case the order comes down for them to uh, to go. Um, and the other thing I was very, uh, very uh, happy with was that there are so many other folks there from the South Okanagan, 
Samilkameen Regional District uh, have come over to help and give the city of Penticton uh, a hand to cope with all this, all the people that are coming that are asking for help. And you mentioned animals as well. Is that a concern as far as where the animals will go? Yeah, well, yes, it is. Uh, to many animal lovers and to me, because um, I've always owned two dogs, so I'm very concerned about them. But uh, on uh, social media, there's because um, uh, I go to it a lot, and I, I read where there are folks out in in the community, especially out in the rural areas, that will be willing to take in uh, animals in case people have to uh, have to um, uh, they have to leave their homes and. Uh, in the areas where those animals, uh, their habitat, in other words. So there are a lot of folks in the area that are prepared to take on this task of trying to save animals, for sure. All right. Well, we'll leave it there, and we'll be uh, keeping watch and keeping people updated as to what's happening and hoping uh, that that fire does get contained. Mayor Vasilaki, thank you so much for joining us, and stay safe, and I hope your house is okay. Thank you. Yeah, me too. And thank you for calling. And if you ever want further information, just call anytime. Okay, we will. Thank you again. Thank you.